Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians as we come to the final verses of this uh, great book. Really, the last two books, a year and a half ago, we started looking at these two letters and taking from them the many, many lessons that Paul has. And if we ever had an impression that the, the early church, the apostolic church, was some sort of idyllic, you know, perfect, tranquil community, hopefully all of those ideas were uh, righted through our study of these two books. This was certainly not an ideal environment, not an ideal church in any way. Paul has to address a number of issues, beginning, first of all, with his own sudden departure. When he was uh, somewhat thrust out of the city by his detractors and his enemies after just three months together with them, and, and left behind a church that had uh, been given a good foundation, but had many ways that it needed to grow. And not only that, they were left behind to, to face the same kind of persecution that Paul himself had faced. And so as he went out and he was chased even from city to city after that, they were on his heart all the time. And, and so he wrote, he wrote these two letters back to them, trying to complete what was lacking yet in their faith. I mean, he understood that you don't grow mature Christians in three months. And on top of that, you know, this is, this is the first letters of Paul that we have recorded, probably written about 50 AD, Christ died in 33 AD. So these are 17 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Christianity itself is a brand new thing. And here's this fledgling church with very, very short, a short life, uh, you know, a, a new birth, much that still needs to happen in their midst. And and Paul has been writing back, giving them all kinds of exhortations, urging them towards brotherly love that they might increase more and more in it, reminding them that they live in a dark world and they need to be sober-minded and dress themselves in the armor of light, as he says. He reminds them how they need to respect and love those who are over them in the Lord, who taught them the word of God and show them the proper honor, how they need to be at peace with one another and not return vengeance or not return evil for evil. Don't seek revenge. He reminds them how they have a responsibility to one another when they see a brother who is idle or who is weak or who is faint-hearted, that it's their responsibility to, to, to get engaged with those brothers and sisters, to exhort them, to encourage them in their, in their faith. He reminds them uh, to be thankful in all circumstances. These are just the sort of basic Christian principles of life, the, the particular principles of their ministry, their situation that he had to talk to them about. And then on top of that, the very particular issue for them, of course, was the great number of people, apparently, or at least the significant number enough to be disruptive in the congregation because they were idlers. They were meddlers. They were busybodies. They were people who were lazy. They weren't doing their work. They were trying to depend on others and, and freeloading off of others. And that in itself was creating conflict and friction and disruption within the church, as you might imagine. And then from that came all kinds of relational difficulties as people didn't quite know how to respond to these new folks who were considered now brothers and sisters in Christ and they were supposed to be compassionate and they were supposed to be kind and yet they sensed that that they were being taken advantage of and they didn't know how to navigate through all of those complexities of of compassion and and confrontation and where the line is between all of that 
So Paul has addressed all of these things all the way through and along the way even reminding them of the importance of God's word and how they need to hold fast to the traditions that they had been taught. And he commends them for these things. He tells them he's grateful, certainly as a pastor, he's grateful to see what has happened in their life, but he knows that there's so much more that they need to learn, so much more where they need to grow. And so, you, so, so really throughout these letters, you see these touching, these, these, these very affectionate expressions from him of pastoral love, pastoral concern, and along the way giving incisive, keen, compelling counsel and admonition to them. But throughout all the pages, you also have this, a consistent message that none of what he has asked them to do, none of what he's taught them, none of what they learned from him when he was with them, none of that stuff is going to be possible apart from the very special working of God in their life. Perhaps the clearest statement of that, maybe the clearest statement in all of the Bible, comes to us at the end of 1 Thessalonians when Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That was Paul's prayer and it was his encouragement to them. That God is the one who will do it. God is the one who must do it. You need to be sanctified. You need to be sanctified wholly and completely. You need to be preserved, blameless in your body and your mind and your spirit. You need all that stuff. You need this to take place in your life. You need to hear our exhortations and our commands. But you also need to understand ultimately that it all depends on God's grace at work within you. He's our confidence, but he's faithful and he'll do it. And even back in, in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he was praying at the end of that chapter that the Lord, he says, make you increase and abound in love for one another. So he prayed, he'd, he'd commanded them to love, but he says, may the Lord cause it to happen within you. Or in 2 Thessalonians, we saw at the end of chapter 1, he prays, may God make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. May God give you the resolve to do what is necessary so that you can be worthy of him. Or at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the end of the chapter, we may remember, Paul again prays that God would, com- uh, would comfort your hearts and do what? And establish them in every good work and word. So it just goes, it's just peppered all the way throughout these letters. From the first letter to the second letter, Paul's writing to this young congregation, maybe <clears throat> sensing, because of his own distance, a a, a personal sense of helplessness to do anything. But more than that, the the idea that, that permeates his theology, that you will not be capable... Of, oh, of fulfilling anything that I've urged you to do or commanded you to do apart from God's grace. But he's faithful and he'll do it. 
All these exhortations, all these instructions, Paul keenly understands that if they are relying on their resources solely, on their resources and their ingenuity, they're, they're helpless. He even understands that his own words, no matter how profound or rich he may think that they are, they're, they're nothing. If God doesn't work in a very special way in their life to help them be sanctified in all of these ways. So he's constantly asking God to sanctify, to do what he desires to do in them, to cause their love to increase, to give them resolve to do the things that they've been asked to do, to establish them in every good work and in word. And even here in chapter 3, you may remember back in verse 5, what does he say to them? May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Again, just a prayer because he knows that they do not have the spiritual resources in themselves to love God the way they need to love God. They cannot sustain it. You may think in your heart and mind that you've reached a point where you can sustain the kind of love for God that you're supposed to, but you can't. You you will never reach that point. No matter how far you go in Christ, you will never reach the point where you can just sit back and coast and not have to plead with God any longer to be directing your heart into the love of God. You can't get there. And Paul knows that. It's a beautiful picture, really, of pastoral counseling and shepherding and love and oversight. Paul was not a a pastor. He wasn't a counselor or a friend who would meet with someone and go go over all of these truths together with them or write a letter to them and give them words of exhortation and then just assume that whenever they left his his presence, or whenever they finished reading his letter, or whatever, that, that his words were filled with so much profound insight, and so much cleverness, that, that somehow it, it alone was going to alter the course of their life. He wasn't that kind of a pastor. He wouldn't meet with them, he wouldn't write to them, or whatever it was, and then just sort of forget about it, or just send them on their way Thinking and trusting that his counsel alone would be enough. He understood as a pastor the absolute necessity of prayer. And so he gives these exhortations throughout these letters, but then he gives these prayers. And he asked God to work. He wrote them, these words, and then he prayed for them. If he was a If he was on site, if he was a pastor, he would have met with them and he would have given them the same truths. And after they left his his office or his house or whatever, he would have got on his knees and he would have pleaded with God to establish them in the work and the word that he had just asked them to do. He would have beseeched the Lord to give them the resolve to be able to fulfill what is commanded of them he would he would pray that the lord would sanctify them completely 
He would ask the Lord to demonstrate his faithfulness and his power in their life so that all the truth that he had reviewed together with them would become manifest in their life. He understood that they didn't have the resources and he didn't have the resources and all the stuff he could say to them in the world would not be enough if God didn't intervene in their life in a very special way. And so he gives them all these instructions, he gives them all these things, but he keenly understands what's still necessary, that God would be at work to bring these things about. Now, this just reflects Paul's prayer life. I mean, he told us already, we've seen a number of prayers as we go through these letters, he's already told us that he prays for them unceasingly. He's already said that he prays for them all the time. And you can even see it as he's writing these letters. He can't even get through these letters without just periodically interjecting a prayer for God to do something through this word in their life. I mean, that's the way that Paul lived his life. I mean, he would be going throughout his day and he would just be praying. I was driving in this morning and and just had things on my heart and I just prayed and I stopped. I parked my car before I walked in this morning. I just prayed and I I got into the the, the building, the service this morning and something came to mind. I just prayed. And this was Paul's life. He just prayed constantly. He was constantly lifting up for the various needs of the people. He tells them, That they were always on his heart. This is his pastoral approach. More importantly, it's his theology. He understands what is necessary in the sanctification and growth in the life of every believer. Not just that they know the truth, but they have God working within them to live it out. So, as we come to the end of these two letters, it's not surprising that what we find at the end is yet another of these prayers. Another expression by Paul of the hope and the need for God to work among them and in them so that what he has explained to them conceptually and theologically would now be known experientially in their life. And, and, and he, so he, he adds this on. It's appended along with some closing comments in his letter, but it very much carries the same spirit as what you find in the rest of these letters. And, and this is what he says at the end of the book, verse 16. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. This is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, obviously, this short little section, it's a diverse section, but you see the main idea here, the need and the desire for God to give them what they need, the, the, the desire for God to be at work in them graciously so that they could live out everything Paul is urging them toward. And in verse 16, he basically asks for two things. First of all, that God would give them peace. And secondly, that he would give them a sense of his presence. In verse 17, he gives them the assurance of the authenticity of this letter in his own writing. And then verse 18, a prayer wish for grace. And when you put it all together, really what Paul's seeking here is provision for them in four different ways. 
The first one, which really takes much of the focus of these final verses, is tied so closely to what he's just told them in the rest of chapter 3 and how they need to handle these disruptive people, these idle people, these lazy people, uh, and, and that is that God would provide them with peace. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. Shalom, that would have been the way that Paul would have uh, known it in his Jewish heritage. Many Jews greet one another that way, but, but now he understands it as a believer in Christ. He understands it in a, in a much richer way. The peace and the stability that this congregation needed, the peace and the stability that they desired, the peace and the stability that might have been absent at times for them, only would come as the Lord had worked. And they had faced a disruptive time as a congregation. There, as I said, had been this rising friction between these freeloaders and those who were diligently working and maybe felt like they were being taken advantage of. And this disruption was, was exaggerated because the idle people were taking advantage of their, of their free time and actually becoming busybodies in everyone else's life and, and, and expecting to live off the generosity of some, they were actually becoming disruptive in the lives of everyone. Paul understood how this threatened the peace of the entire body of Christ. He understood also how painful it was going to be for them to deal with this. I mean, he has spent a year now, back from even his time together with them, to the letters he wrote, the messages, the messengers that he sent back to them. It's been a year in various ways trying to get them to understand this very basic biblical principle that if you don't work, you don't eat. That if you have the ability and you have the opportunity to work, that God has designed you to work. That he wants you to be productive all your days. But these people in the church had resisted that. For whatever reason, cultural reasons, maybe even theological reasons. Skewed theological reasons, we should say. People had resisted the clear teaching of the word of God. And it actually demonstrated a heart that was resistant to being corrected. Didn't want to grow. They didn't want to hear the word of God. They didn't want to hear the teaching of Paul. And so he says, look, if they don't listen to what I say in this letter... If they don't listen to the traditions as we've taught them to you, then what you need to do is separate. What you need to do is separate. You need to have nothing to do with them. Yet even with that, Paul had to add the instruction that you're not treating them like an enemy. They're not your object of attack when you're doing this. You're not out there trying to intentionally undermine their life and make them unnecessarily miserable, but your relationship has changed. You need to recognize that. It has shifted from sort of a casual friendship kind of relationship to now one of intentional exhortation and admonition so that even while you're separating from them and having nothing to do with them socially, you still admonish them as a brother when you have the opportunity. 
Because even the separation really has an ultimate purpose, which is reconciliation. It really is the final step of love. It's tough love, but it's the final step of love designed to bring them to a point where they would finally reflect on their behavior with a sense of shame that they, for whatever reason, haven't been able to see up to this point. To hopefully bring them back to a a place where their conscience is properly activated to see how shameful the behavior has been and to trigger a kind of repentance within them that would bring about reconciliation. This is what Paul's just really advised them to do. He just kind of laid out that roadmap for them. And yet even with all that, Paul offers this prayer immediately. That God would give them peace at all times and in every way. Now that seems incongruent to people. Wait, wait you, you want us to be at peace at, in every way, but then you're telling us that we're supposed to separate from people. We're supposed to put people out of the church even. It may not sound like a formula for peace. It may actually sound for them like a formula for division. But Paul understood. He wasn't prescribing division. He was recognizing it. Paul was just not pretending like it was not division already. He understood the way that sin operates. He understands that sin decays from the inside out. And then if you don't separate from it, that it's going to have its slow leavening effect. So Paul, what he's doing, and, and any church, by the way, who takes this kind of step, they're not creating division. They're recognizing the division that has already come because of sin, and they're dealing with it. They're dealing with it in the best possible way, the, po- the only way that is most likely to produce unity, to produce peace. Paul wasn't pretending like there was peace when in fact there wasn't peace. He wasn't one of the prophets from the days of Jeremiah who were saying peace, peace when there is no peace. He was urging this congregation, prescribing them to deal with the the pervading lack of peace, the disruptive people in their midst And it was intended to get to the heart of these people and what they were doing and hopefully bring them to repentance and bring them back to peace. So he has given them very clear instruction, prescribing for them what they needed to do in order to bring about peace. But at the same time, Paul understood that they could do all that stuff. They could go through all of those those sort of steps. And at the end of the day, unless God is at work, it won't do anything. Unless they are pleading with the Lord to use even their dramatic efforts, it will lead to nothing. And so he prays that they needed God to bring them peace. This is also, by the way, not just talking about that external peace because Paul gives a kind of qualifier here. It isn't just external peace But he says he wants the Lord to give them peace at all times in in every way. That is, he wants to give them both, both this objective external peace, but also an internal peace. The word itself is used in both 
ways throughout the scripture. You you see it used to refer to uh, peace between two enemies, and you also see it referred to peace in the sense of internal calm. Not only the cessation of difficulties or the cessation of hostilities, but also the freedom from anxiety and inner turmoil. And I believe Paul really has both of the ideas here in mind whenever he's praying for God to give them peace at all times and in every way, internally and externally, because he understood what he had asked them to do would cause them a certain amount of vexation. I mean, it's just natural. We all sort of shrink away from these kinds of conflicts. We shrink away from that kind of confrontation. We're all sort of prone to want to sweep things under the carpet. And Paul understood that what he's doing, asking them to, to highlight and, and really kind of bring all of this stuff to the surface and put someone out of the church and sort of bring everything to a head, he understands that that can ter- stir you up on the inside. And so he's asking that God would not only work in their congregation bringing about peace, but he's also asking that God would give them internal peace. A peace in the midst of difficulties. A peace that is, that is really uh, beyond whatever kind of external turmoil might be happening. This is what God gives. The Lord of peace. May he give you peace in all these ways. This is a peace, by the way, that only God can give. He is the Lord of peace, and only him, or only he, can give this peace. In fact, in the, in the uh, original language, in the Greek, It's not just the Lord of peace. It's the Lord of the peace. The Lord of the one and only peace. This is, in other words, a peace unlike any other peace. This is a a peace and a, a, a tranquility, a sense of calm that is unique. It isn't just any peace. This isn't just a peace like the peace that you might find when you, when you have a relaxing environment, when you run off to the mountains or whenever you go on vacation. This isn't just a peace that you, that you would find coming from whatever source you would find it in the world. This is a particular, a specific peace. This is the peace that belongs only to God. That the Lord of the peace would give to you. You remember Jesus told his disciples in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. So he's focusing here on a kind of peace that will comfort their troubled hearts. In other words, he's focusing on an internal peace that is unlike anything else that you can get from the world. You cannot create an environment that would generate this kind of tranquility and calm and peace in your heart. You can't find a counselor who would give you this kind of peace. You can't take a pill. You can't drink it from a bottle to try to get this peace. There's no way to get this kind of internal peace. You won't find it. 
A peace that the world cannot give. Because it's the peace that comes from the Lord of this peace. A peace unlike what the world offers. In fact, in Philippians, Paul calls it a peace that surpasses all human understanding. That the peace of God, he says in Philippians 4, 6, which surpasses all understanding would guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing statement. A peace which surpasses all human understanding. That's because it is not human. It is not of this world. It isn't anything that can be produced from this world. It is the peace of God. And it goes beyond human reason. That is because it is not rational. It cannot be fully analyzed. It can't be fully understood. That's the point. It's a peace that men and women cannot fully understand and therefore they cannot offer it. They can't mimic it. They can't come close to it. They can't offer it. You don't go to men and women to get this peace. You don't go to a counselor who can give it to you. There's no no therapy session that can manufacture it. You can't construct it. You can't create an environment where you can flee away and find it. It's a unique kind of peace. And a peace that this world doesn't give. It comes only from God. And he gives it only to his disciples. It's a peace that he gives only to those who are his children. Particularly as Paul says in Philippians, his children who have learned the practice of prayer with thankfulness. It's one of the instruments he's chosen through which he dispenses this peace to his children. But listen to me carefully. You cannot have that kind of peace if you're still an enemy of God. You can't have that kind of peace until you have peace with God. You see, all this peace that the Bible speaks about, it all begins with you making peace with God. For you recognizing, first of all, that you've been an enemy of God, that you've been hostile to His commands, that you've resisted His commands, you've resisted His laws. And until you come to that place, you are not at peace with God and you can forget about ever having any kind of real internal peace. You can forget about it. You will not have it. You can try, you can chase, you can run from one situation to the next, you can try to build all these fancy things and buy all these fancy things and, and take all of these, these uh, pills or go to all your therapies or whatever it might be. You will, you will never have this internal peace, ever. Because you're not at peace with God. Romans 5 says that if, if you are justified by faith, then you have peace with God. A few verses later in that chapter, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
And what he's talking about there is God's wrath and his anger against us because of our waywardness, because of our sin, because of our resistance to his law. God poured out his wrath on his son, on the cross, thereby satisfying his wrath and creating a way for peace. So when you read to uh, read Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's able to say that Christ himself is our peace. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that God might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, through the cross, thereby killing hostility. I know that's a lot of theology, but what he's basically saying is, you were an enemy of God. You were one who was rebelling against God. You resisted God's commandments. There was hostility, whether you wanted to recognize it or not, between you and God. You think your hostility is with all these people who are aggravating you all the time, your co-workers and your family members and all these other people. And so you got all this anger and all this frustration and all this disappointment built up within you. No, your problem is between you and God. And you don't have that internal peace because you don't have peace with God. We as Gentiles, Paul says, were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's your standing if you're not in faith. But when, when you confess your hostility to God, when you confess your hostility to God and ask Him for forgiveness, then he has provided the way of peace. And because of the cross of Christ, you are forever, forever at peace with God. You go from being an enemy actually to being his son or his daughter, his child. You go from being God's object of wrath to being God's object of profound mercy and grace. And he now offers you not just that external peace, but he offers you an internal peace. A peace not like the world gives, which he gives to us. A peace that passes all understanding. And peace floods your heart at all times. And you begin to understand if God is for you, who can be against you? And now you can face all the turmoil and you can face all the disappointments of all the people who are around you or whatever life may give to you and you just reflect back on the fact that because of Christ you now are no longer an enemy of God but God is on your side he is your friend in fact he's your loving father so that floods your heart with peace he's the Lord of peace And this is what Paul's asking for. He's asking for this. He's praying for this. Because it's one thing to hear about this peace. It's a whole other thing to experientially live it every day. And his prayer is that God would give them peace at all times. That speaks about the duration. It's not something you just kind of feel from time to time. In at all times it's just an unceasing understanding of where you stand in Christ and in every way that it 
permeates every situation you do. There's nothing that disrupts your life anymore. It's not saying that you don't have hardship and you don't have turmoil. It's not saying you'll never be sick. You'll never be destitute of of, of some resources from time to time. It's not saying any of that stuff. But it's saying that you can go through all of those things and it never rattles your peace. Isaiah 26 verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. Over all victorious in its bright increase. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. This is what Paul wants for them. He wants God to work among them, bringing about not only repentance and reconciliation within their body externally, but also within their hearts, even as they have to do sometimes the difficult work of confrontation and separation, that they're not just all torn up about it. That they would have the work of God within them, giving them this everlasting peace even as people are trying to take advantage of them even as people are freeloading off of them even as they see people who aren't carrying their weight or they're frustrated with other believers who are faint-hearted and and not progressing in the faith as the way they ought to even as they're dealing with the immaturities of a young congregation all around them it would never affect their peace they wouldn't be they wouldn't be frantic all the time worried all the time about all these things that they might imagine are in their control, but are not in their control. They just rest in the peace of God. A peace that comes only from Him. You can't manufacture it, and Paul knows that, so he prays for it. There's a second provision that Paul prays for as well. One that he's seeking for them. That is, at the end of verse 16, that God would provide them with His presence. That's the second part of that verse. That the Lord be with you all. That the Lord be with you all. Now, obviously, Paul's not questioning the omnipresence of God. He understood what Scripture taught. He understood that, you know, when Solomon dedicated the temple, what Solomon said, you know, the heavens can't contain you. And all creation can't contain you. How much less this house that we're building for you. He understood Isaiah. The heaven, uh, the Lord says, the heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What house would you build for me? What is the place of my rest? He understood what the psalmist says. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go uh, from you? I can't ascend into heaven. I can't go down to Sheol because even there I'll find you. He understood The omnipresence of God. He understood these realities. He believed that God is everywhere all the time. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the experience, or you might even say the manifestation in a special way of God's presence. Because the Bible speaks about God's presence being, especially with his people, being especially manifested at particular places and among particular people. You may remember when Jesus met his disciples and gave them the great commission up on the mount and in 
in a Galilee. He gave him this in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you. My presence is with you always to the end of the age. Well, what's he talking about? He's not talking about his omnipresence. He's not talking about how, how that he exists in everywhere in creation. What he's talking about is his power. He's talking about empowerment for the task that they have to do. And he wants to assure them that they will have the necessary empowerment to fulfill this responsibility. In John 14, you remember, he told his disciples he was about to go away. This was the night before he was crucified. He was about to go away, but he wouldn't leave them alone. He says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him. We will come to him. Not that God is absent in his omnipresence, but what he's saying is, if you abide in my word, my special manifestation of my presence, me and my Father will be with you. We see that, of course, fulfilled in a sense on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost when the disciples who just a few weeks earlier had scattered at the night of Christ's arrest and his trial who had denied even knowing him, who had cowered away in dark and hidden rooms, and even at that very moment were hiding away in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. But then the Lord manifested himself, not just in tongues of fire that came down upon them, but more importantly in boldness. Boldness to fulfill the will of God. Boldness to go out and proclaim the gospel that they had been so ashamed of proclaiming, it seems, just a few weeks earlier. God's presence made such a profound difference in them and in their ministry. You remember Genesis, we read that Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, sold into slavery by his brothers... But it says in verse 2 of Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he, he was in the house of his Egyptian master and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. You read 1 Samuel chapter 18, David had success in all of his undertakings because the Lord was with him. And then later on in that same chapter, it says Saul, King Saul, he recognized and he knew that the Lord was with David and he was more afraid of David than he was before because he saw the Lord was with him. This is a special manifestation of the Lord. You see it again and again throughout the pages of Scripture. The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord for strength. The presence of the Lord for wisdom. The presence of the Lord for for enabling. The presence of the Lord for success at whatever endeavor He has given you to do. And so as Paul prays, he realizes 
that they don't have the resources to do all the things that have been asked of them, you hopefully realize as you sit in church week after week after week or you hear from others all the things that God asks you to do in terms of, of your kind, the kind of speech that God wants on, on your, your lips or the kind of works that He wants you to do, the kind of ways He wants you to share the gospel, the kind of selfless generosity He wants you to show. You probably live with the constant realization that you do not have the resources to be able to fulfill everything God has asked you to do. Well, Paul understood that, and so he prayed for God's special presence among them, that God would be with them, and not just a few of them. He wasn't just praying that that they would have a few people who were filled with God in this way. Notice what he says, that God would be with all of them. That the Lord would be with you all, every one of you. That He would give you what you need to fulfill everything that He's asked of you. He's given them all these instructions, but He knows that they don't have the power to respond to everything they've heard and learned. And that the will of God will be impossible apart from this special manifestation of God's presence. So he prays the Lord would be with them so that they can live it out. Tremendous pastoral mindset. There's a third provision that Paul desires for them, and it's just very practical in this situation. And it's in verse 17 that that he wanted to provide them with proof of his authorship of this letter. He wanted to provide them with fruit, proof. Now, this is a bit of a different direction with these closing comments. It's not so much something he was wishing for or praying for, but it was something he had already given to them and he wanted to make sure that they took notice of it. And it's simply this, the proof that the letter they were reading was indeed by his hand. That it was genuinely by apostolic authorship. It was therefore divinely inspired and divinely authoritative. That was necessary for them. As Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And he says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Well, that's the way Paul wanted them to receive this letter. This is the way he wanted them to receive this in the same way. He wanted them to have confidence that what they're reading in this particular letter is indeed not the word of some person, but it's the word of God. And so he provides them with this proof in the form of his own handwriting. Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time here. It's quite obvious. We understand why Paul is doing this, especially in light of chapter 2, verse 2 when they had already received a letter in their congregation purporting to be from the Apostle Paul, but it was a false letter, it was a pseudo-letter, and yet they had received it and had read it and had given credence to it, 
and it introduced all kinds of false ideas into the congregation that caused them all kinds of turmoil. And so now Paul is writing this letter and he's reminding them of the proof of his letter, of this letter, of all of his letters. And it's in the handwriting. He expected them to recognize the handwriting. In fact, he adds that little phrase, this is the way I write. This is a proof of my signature. Up to this point in the letter, Paul had been using, as he always did, an amanuensis. Someone called an amanuensis. Someone who wrote down all the words that Paul dictated. In those days, a lot different than our own day, writing a letter was laborious. It had nothing to do with screens and keyboards. It didn't even have to do with convenient lead pencils or ballpoint pens. It was done using a crude carved out inkwell with an inefficient feather quill usually in some sort of cramped and dark setting writing on parchment paper which was a basically a bunch of reeds that had been pressed together in a crisscross pattern until there was enough heft to them to be able to hold the ink and be able to keep their shape and but it was it was in certainly a ribbed kind of a paper. It wasn't anything that was easy or, or, or uh, you know, uh, particularly um, something that would be convenient to write on. And so rather than thinking through all the mechanics of how to operate with this inkwell and this quill and this parchment paper and the candle that you'd have sitting over you and, and trying your best not to dip your finger or to drip your ink somewhere, all that stuff that goes into writing. Rather than thinking about all those mechanics, what Paul would do is what a lot of people did in those days is he would just dictate to a professional scribe, someone who was used to working with these instruments all the time. He would write these things out. This was his pattern throughout all of his letters. These were professional scribes. They might have been members of the church who happened to do this profession and wanted to just serve in this way. They might have been people that Paul hired. But we know that there were these scribes. In fact, we know the names of one of them in Romans 16.22. At the end of the letter, we are reading along in this letter from Paul to the Romans. And then you arrive Romans 16.22 and we read this. I... Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. So here the scribe takes opportunity to write a personal greeting in his own hand. Colossians 4.18, Paul ends that letter saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. 1 Corinthians 16.22, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Galatians six. Verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So this is just what he did. He, he would sign all of his letters. In fact, he tells us, even here in 2 Thessalonians 3, this is what he does in all of his letters. He would put his personal handwriting so that the church could easily authenticate his letters. You have all this debate and all this discussion among scholars and liberals about how the church, you know, didn't authenticate or wouldn't authenticate or couldn't authenticate the apostolic letters in the first century or, or many of them 
suggests that there were no real apostolic letters in the first century. Well, Paul says exactly the opposite. He would write these letters. He would sign these letters. He would give them clear clear and compelling evidence to accept the authenticity of these documents. And we don't necessarily have a copy of his handwriting anymore because the, the, the material that they wrote on was not designed to last very long. Parchment paper was basically reeds. It wasn't treated in any kind of special way with any kind of chemicals that would keep it from decaying and deteriorating. So these kind of documents, except in extremely dry and arid climates when they were buried underground, these kind of documents would wither away in really less than a hundred years. They were copied. As soon as they arrived at their destinations, there would be dozens of copies made and sent throughout all the sort of various regions. So we have uh, an accurate representation of what was written, but we don't have the exact original document. But the churches would have recognized the handwriting in that original document and they would have been assured that the words they were reading were the words of an apostle and therefore the words of God. This was inspired authoritative text and Paul wanted them to understand that so he provided them with proof so that they could have confidence. He recognized how essential this was. If they were going to obey what was in this letter, they had to know that it was indeed God's word. And then finally, verse 18, really a fourth provision that Paul desires for them. And that is that God would provide them with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is almost identical to what Paul says at the end of every one of his letters, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This wasn't the standard greeting. You know, like we would find at the end of our letters, we might put sincerely, respectfully, kind regards or whatever it might be. In those days, most letters were, were finalized or were closed out with the word be strong. One word in the Greek. Be strong. In fact, you see in James chapter uh, Acts chapter 15, the, uh, the apostolic council writes a letter to the Gentiles and that's how they end the letter, be strong. But when you get to the epistles, when you get to the writing of Paul, he does what other Christians did in that day is they Christianized the cultural convention of this closing saying. And so rather than putting something down like be strong or goodbye or sincerely. They wanted to sanctify everything they did, dedicate everything they did to the glory of God. So even in the smallest thing, like signing a letter, they changed it to grace be with you. Kind of a parting prayer, a wish, the way they wanted to seal all of their communication between one another. As if to say by these words that my words and my letter and my hopes and my exhortations or whatever, none of it is anything apart from the grace of God being with you. Grace, which is that one word probably that summarizes everything that God gives to us. It's, it's His kindness and His favor and His generosity poured out to us apart from and even above what we deserve. So he's basically asking, may God flood your life 
with those things you could never deserve. The life and the richness and the fullness of his love and his favor, the ability to understand, the ability to live out all the things that you hear and know, all the things that you've read in this letter and other letters by the power and grace of God. This is what every pastor knows. This is what every counselor knows. This is what every mature Christian knows. That you will not and you cannot succeed in everything God has asked you to do apart from His power and His grace. So Paul's asking for it to come just like you and I need it. Lord, we need grace upon grace so that we can obey You Indeed, we need your power and your presence working among us. We need your peace filling our hearts. We need your sanctifying work. Lord, we need you. Would you hear our prayers? We know that you're faithful. We know that you can do it. We know that you can establish our resolve for every good work and word. Lord, we pray that you would do it not only in our hearts and minds, but in everyone we minister to. Those people we've met with this week, our spouse, our children, all of our loved ones, all those who are around us in the body of Christ, we pray, Father, that you would establish us by your grace and your strength. Lord, may you do it not only for the sake of our blessing and our good, but for the sake of your name and your, and your glory, for which we pray. Amen.